0: Let's take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 8. You maybe can tell that I've been struggling with a cold this week. That is all it is, I promise you. Um, But I wanted to be careful. That's why you see me when I'm out about in your midst wearing a mask, just so that we can be extra safe. But um, if any of you knew that this week and prayed for me, I appreciate that, and uh, I'm feeling much better this morning. John chapter 8, verses 21 through 30 will be our text for this morning. Entitled, a rather long title this morning, Unless You Believe That I Am, You Will Die in Your Sins. We continue this morning in John 8, where we have seen the Pharisees once again challenging Jesus, which they continue to do in this part of the dialogue, coming back to the issue of his identity. So we always are seeing the Pharisees, the religious leaders, uh, coming up against Jesus, challenging Jesus in his earthly ministry. And we are seeing this continued addressing that Jesus does And this fuller and fuller blossoming of who he uh, is uh, in the sense of him telling them and continuing to reveal more to them. And uh, this is a very sobering encounter in our text this morning. I'll I'll have you remain seated this morning uh, for the scripture reading in the New Testament. But we're going to read, I'm going to read as you follow along, John chapter 8, starting in verse 21. I'm reading from the ESV under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. John the Apostle writes, So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself, since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father so Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. As He was saying these things, many believed in Him. you join me once again in prayer? Again, Lord, we come to You asking for your Spirit, who inspired these words in the original autographs to now illuminate our eyes to an understanding, to an application, uh, Lord, we believe that you do that through your Spirit and your Word, so we ask for that now, I ask for strength to be able to preach this morning as we open your Word and study together, and I do ask, Lord, that you would hide, hide me behind the cross and the empty tomb Lord, give us a great understanding of how we are to grow in light of this passage. And I do pray that your Holy Spirit, who illumines the minds and the eyes of believers, would also do the work of conviction in the hearts of those who are in our midst who do not know you, or that they would come to faith as a result of hearing your gospel preached. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I have said before, and perhaps got this from someone else. I don't remember. But the opposite of righteousness is not just simply unrighteousness, but it is unrighteousness particularly manifested in self-righteousness. Unrighteousness is not simply the opposite of righteousness, but it is unrighteousness particularly manifested in self-righteousness. That is... Uh, we tend to, as human beings, especially as those who would be unregenerate, uh, but even as Christians, we tend to do this as well. Look at others and say, "I am not as bad as that person over there," and, and and we could really sort of take the scale and 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 put it anywhere. You know, many people would say, "I'm not as bad as Hitler." I mean, he kind of is the one who we always kind of uh, tag with this, but but really, we we kind of. Uh, unconsciously do this, we measure ourselves against others i 'm not as bad as that person over there, therefore, in comparison, I am righteous, and quite frankly, God calls that self righteousness for there is none righteous, no, not one however, and this is why we see this happen in light of even what I just quoted from the scriptures. It all falls apart in the face of God. Our self righteousness falls apart in the face of God. Paul even says, All have sinned and fall short of God's what? His glory. When we face the glory of God, we either do two things. When we are made aware of the glory of God, the holiness of God, the perfections of God in all that He is. We either do two things. We either repent or we rebel. And certainly that rebellion can take on many forms. It doesn't always look the same uh, as we think uh, across the span of history or, or, or even uh, amongst people that we may know or even more importantly our own hearts. But we rebel or we repent. We see here in our text today as people who are confronted by God. They're confronted by the glory of God, yes, veiled in humanity at this moment in the text, but they are confronted by God in the person of Jesus Christ, who for all intents and purposes are those spoken of in John 11, where it says, he came to his own and what his own people did not receive him. This is a classic uh, demonstration of that in our text today. Remember, we've talked uh, recently, even last week, about the, the prologue of John. John 1, 1 through 1-18 gives us a, an outline, an overview of the gospel of John. And we see this uh, sort of point of the sermon, if you will, come up here in our text today. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. He said, Jason, the very last verse you read there, verse 30 says that some believed in him. Well, we're going to see what happens with that in our next text. Uh, So uh, kind of tuck that away in the back of your mind for next week. We'll address it this morning. But we, we come to find out that belief is not always what we think it is. Even though our main point states there are some who believe, we will see that believing is not always what we think it is. And here is our main point this morning. Jesus unequivocally continues to declare who he is. And and we're going to unpack that once again this morning. And you say, it feels like we continue to unpack and unpack the same things here in the Gospel of John. In one sense, we have to look at the historical sort of uh, sweep that John is trying to address in the ministry of Jesus, much different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the, the synoptics as we call them. But this continues to come up in the text because it continues to come up in Jesus' earthly ministry. And rather than Jesus sort of tossing up his hands and saying, I've already told you, in fact, he does say, it is what I've been telling you from the beginning, and I am willing to, underneath this, continue to tell you this over and over again. Again, So Jesus unequivocally continues to declare who he is. Many continue continue to doubt while some believe. But even that belief we will see next week is confronted by Jesus as to whether it is a genuine belief or not. But this morning for this text, we're going to look at three parts of this continued conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees. This continued conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees. And for various reasons... And um, indicators within the text, it it is possible that this could still be happening at the Feast of the Tabernacles. And, And this would be, if the timeline is correct that we have, this could be the very last thing that Jesus says at that Feast. And there's some discussion around that. But just so you know, that could still be the background here. The first part of this continued conversation we see, number one, is the Jews are confused by Jesus once again. And whether this is a willful confusion or uh, still uh, sort of this idea that they just don't get it, we're reminded that it is only the spiritual who can understand these things. We're reminded that even for us, it is the Spirit of God in us That gives us the ability to understand these things. And so on the one hand, while we can be frustrated with the Pharisees and even the disciples sometimes, we're reminded that it's the Spirit of God who reveals these things to us. But but look again at verses 21 and 22 as we begin to unpack this together this morning. So he, that is Jesus, said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sins. Where I am going you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come. Jesus, again, talks about not only where he is from, but also where he is going. We have addressed this previously in texts, um, uh, previous to this in chapter 7. And he's talked about where he has come from and where he is going. And and these kinds of statements that he's he's made. And, And this is in reference to... His preexistence, the fact that he is eternally the Son of God, has been with God, as John says in John chapter 1. Again, going back to that prologue, he is God. He has been with God. He, all things were created through him. Only this time, as he makes this statement again, he adds a sobering statement about the destiny of those who are questioning him. <clears throat> Excuse me. They will seek him, but instead of finding him, they will die in their sins. Where he is going, they cannot come, and and we remember this morning that the pathway uh, to uh, for Jesus back to the glory restored, as we'll see him say in John chapter seventeen, the glory that he had with the Father previous to his incarnation, that is veiled currently by human flesh. The pathway to that is through the cross. It is through the cross. Jesus will accomplish the mission for which he has been sent. The great Trinitarian plan of redemption will be accomplished through the cross into the grave and then ascended on high. And some commentators believe that when Jesus says the idea here of them continuing to seek him after he has ascended would would have to do with the fact that Jews are still looking for the Messiah. And the reality is is that they will seek for Messiah who is fulfilled obviously in the Lord Jesus Christ and they will not be able to find him because the mission has been accomplished and he he has ascended on high. Now this is not to say, just a side note here, that Jews cannot come to faith in Jesus Christ. Those who seek him will find that he sought them first and there are those who will come to faith in Christ. God is not through with his people, with the remnant of his people, as Romans 9 says. There are Jews that will come to faith in Christ. The point being, though, these particular leaders and those who are in their vein of religiosity without true belief in the Messiah will continue to search, but they will not find find him. And ultimately, that shows their unbelief, which leads to what? Them dying in their sins. That's the the main thing that Jesus is driving at when he says this. Not so much them trying to calculate, okay, where is he going? Not sure we quite understand that. The thing that should sort of grieve them and sober them is this idea that they will die in their sins. Of course, they are what? They're self-righteous. Here Jesus sets up a contrast between himself and the Pharisees. He has previously stated where he is from. Verse 14 of this very chapter and previously... And now He tells them He is going away. But where He is going, they cannot follow. They cannot trust. They will not trust. They will die in their sins. As opposed to what? They will die in their sins as opposed to those who will believe in Him and will not die in their sins because of what Jesus will accomplish on the cross and through the resurrection. But in comparison to Jesus, He has no sin. They cannot, um, they cannot hurl any accusation at him that actually sticks. Therefore, even in this idea, Jesus draws a contrast between himself and them. They will die in their sins, but Jesus has no sins. Since they die in their sins, they cannot come to where he is going. Quite literally, they will not go to where he has ascended like believers will. They will go to hell. Jesus is speaking a bit obscurely here, so it's not a surprise that the Jews do not get what he is saying. But their reply is one of self-righteousness, no doubt. Will he kill himself? The tone here seems to imply that no righteous law-abider would consider doing such a thing. Therefore, their supposition is that Jesus is suicidal. They're saying, well, a righteous person will go into the presence of God... We're going there. If that's not where he's going, then where is he going? Will he kill himself? Will he commit suicide? Esseless Johnson kind of uh, brings out the idea that this is an interesting statement because Jesus does say, No one takes my life from me. I give it away. Though that is not classified as suicide, Jesus does give himself to death in the plan of redemption. but they're implying that Jesus is not righteous. And as they do that, they're trying to set up their own contrast. They do not see Jesus at all in the same category as themselves. They cannot concede that Jesus is their equal, much less superior to them, which of course he is. This is the arrogance with which they view Jesus. And dear friends, can I say it is the arrogance of some even in our day. Some in our day would not even believe that Jesus ever existed, much less see Him as the God-man, as the Messiah. Others misrepresent Jesus as one who would not hold to the ethic of the Old Testament, therefore making a Jesus of their own liking, as we have studied in the past. And interestingly, later in this very gospel, Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to the Father but, what, through him. What these religious leaders and even people in our day deny to one degree or another, is the exclusivity of Jesus. The exclusivity of Jesus. There are even so-called churches that would hold that there are many ways to God. Jesus continues to draw that line in the sand. And as I said, it continues to blossom and flower as he reveals more and more uh, details, even though he has given enough for them to understand what he is saying here. Hearing the response of the leaders, Jesus responds once again, clarifying what exactly he is saying, as we see in our second point. Jesus clarifies and calls once again. Jesus clarifies where they are from and where he is from. Look at verse 23. He said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. You are from below. Simply, you, your origin is of the earth. You were born in this place. You did not exist previously to being born. You are Your existence comes about in your earthly birth. I am from above. My origin, as it were, though we can't speak of true origin, its eternal origin, is in eternity with the Father. Jesus clarifies where they are from and where he is from. You cannot say, as I can say, that I have existed from eternity past. You are of this place, I am from above. Jesus clarifies what he says regarding their sins. Look at what it says. I told you that you would die in your sins, verse 24, For unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. He clarifies what he is saying regarding their sins. He's drawing a a comparison, a parallel between you are from the earth. Therefore, you are one who is born into sin. And unless you believe that I am He, we're going to get into that in just a moment, you will die in the very sins that you were born into. However, I am from above. Therefore, you must believe that I am He, as in the sinless one. And as you can tell already, this is brimming with theological significance. In summary, you are from below and born in your sins, and you will die in your sins. I am from above, and I am. Unless you believe This, you will die in your sins. Every person who is born into this world outside of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, is born into sin. Mankind has an origin, a starting point. Birth into this world by way of the womb of a woman is the only way mankind is brought into this world outside of God's creative event with Adam and Eve. Everyone since that point has been born. And we recognize that even Jesus is born into this world through a miraculous birth through a virgin. However, the eternal Son does not have a beginning of existence. He forever exists as the eternal Son, eternally generated from the Father. Therefore, Jesus declares, unless you believe that I am, tied to this idea of being from above, tied to this idea of I am, And in ESV it says, I am He, but in the original language, it just simply states, Ego a e me, I am. This is a declarative statement about Jesus' nature. We must remember that Jesus is the God-man. Jesus eternally existed as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, without any uh, beginning and comes into space and time, putting on humanity in the Incarnation, miraculously the divine nature of Jesus is united to a human nature which becomes a part of Him. Those two natures together but never intermingled is what the Scripture teaches us. What the the creeds and the confessions declare rightly from the Scriptures. He is both God and man. And now for the rest of eternity He will have that human body And yet, has always existed, even in His incarnation, as the eternal Son, without any variation in that eternity, in that reality. He is saying that they must believe that He is the eternal Son of God and that He is God. Going back once again to John 1 and verse 1. He is saying that though He truly does stand before them as a man... He is not from below. He is from above. He is the very essence of God. As the author of Hebrews reminds us, He is the very radiance, the effulgence of God. Once again, we are confronted with this Christological theology. Jesus either is who He says He is, or He is a liar. This is the truth that confronts the world. Hear this. This is the truth that confronts the world. Not just that they are sinners. Sinners as compared to what? How how do we describe sinfulness? Because if we go with the current uh, definition of sort of relativism, we can say all sorts of things are sin or are not sin. According to what? According to God and His holiness. And as the Pharisees in Jesus' day and as the world in our day are confronted with the glory of God, the holiness of God, the perfections of God, it is sin as compared to that. This truth confronts the world. Jesus is the eternal Son of God who put on flesh and in so doing lived a perfect life Never sinned, was tempted, but never sinned. Fulfilled all the law, was the perfect Lamb of God placed on the tree, the true Paschal Lamb that the, the Lamb of the Passover pointed toward, the true exodus given to His people through His death upon the cross, bearing the wrath of God, justice being meted out on the cross, the truth of justice of the Trinity, not just the Father, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, just in all of their actions and their roles, Jesus dying on the cross, winning for His people, those who He came to seek and to save, winning for His people, forgiveness of sins, Imputing, giving to, putting in their account His righteousness, being raised three days later from the grave and ascending on high until He comes again. And that truth that confronts the world bears, lays bare their sin and their shame. And they either receive it or reject it and rebel. This is the truth that confronts the world. Jesus is the Son of God and He came into the world and put on humanity and through His perfect life the miracles which God did through Him He has proven over and over and over again to be the eternal Son of God. But they do not even, they do not understand this even though He has told them over and over again. And so we see thirdly, the Jews asks for Jesus' identity once again and once again He declares truth to them. There's a certain sort of frustrating irony here that Jesus continues to tell them even though he has told them many times, isn't there? Read, uh, look at the beginning of verse 25. So they said to him, who are you? From our perspective, we may be like, are you kidding me? This again? Jesus, though, emphatically and yet patiently The Lord is so patient, isn't he? So patient. Look at what he states in the latter half of that verse. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I I have much to say about you and much to judge, but... He who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. So it's an interesting way for Jesus to respond to that, just as I've told you from the beginning. But why does he respond the way he does in, in verse 26? I have so much to say about you and much to judge. There are things that Jesus could legitimately do and things he, could, and, and things he legitimately does do at times in his earthly ministry. But as always, his greater desire in his earthly ministry is to do as he's been directed by his Father through the Spirit. So he's saying, I could have many things to say about you, many things to judge about you, but my focus is upon the mission that my Father has sent me to do. He who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I have what I have heard from him. This indicates not that Jesus should have never said these things to the Pharisees, but he has only said what is in line with his mission. If you look through the Gospels, that is true. His criticism of them is that they are binding people's consciences so that they cannot receive who he is. There's many other things that Jesus could have judged them and said about them, but always what he is saying is the focus of his mission. His confrontation of them is always in regard to what he has come to do. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, he could have said he could share with them many other things, but it is not in line with the plan to come to seek and to save that which is lost. And so all that he said has been in line with that and what he has heard from his father. This again goes back to the issue of being sent by the Father. This is in line with the eternal Son's relation to the Father. Just as as Jesus is from the Father for all eternity, so he too is sent from the Father in time to accomplish the Trinitarian mission of redemption. John explains in verse 27, though, even as they heard this, they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. They still are not making this connection to his being sent from the Father. And then we read this word, so, in verse 28. So so John makes this little comment. Uh, Jesus says, um, I declare to the world what I have heard from him who sent me. He is true. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, This is to be taken as in light of the fact that they did not understand what Jesus was speaking of uh, about the Father. Jesus said to them in verse 28, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing out of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things which are pleasing to Him. First, we see this phrase, when you have lifted up the Son of Man. This should immediately draw their minds to a messianic and Christological. Remember, Messiah, Christ, those are the same words. They mean the same thing. But this should draw their minds to that kind of language that comes from Daniel. Daniel, uh, in, in his prophecy, speaks of the Son of Man coming. That's why Jesus refers to himself often as the Son of Man. It's a messianic title. So he is is not shrouding, he is not veiling very much who he says he is. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of Man. It also refers back to what he has stated in John 3 about the typology of the serpent being raised in the wilderness as the Son of Man will be lifted up for the people to look upon as that, serpent was, that brass serpent was looked upon by those who were being bitten by the serpents to be, to be rescued. So too the Son of Man will be lifted up. And he says, When that occurs, you will know That I am. Again, the ESV says, I am He, but the original language emphasizes this idea of I am. You will know that I am. Once again, Jesus employs the language that directs their minds to the name Yahweh. And again, as we speak about this flowering and blooming idea of revelation, Jesus continues to say, by the end of this chapter, they know exactly what He's saying and they try to stone Him again. That's coming up in coming weeks but he declares himself ever existing as Yahweh. So notice that both things are there. The Messianic, the Son of Man, and I Am. He is saying, I am the Messiah and I am God. I am Yahweh. Every instance of theophany previous to the incarnation, I think most we can say is a pre-incarnate, um, appearance of the Messiah. And when Moses is speaking to the burning bush in the wilderness, he asks that question that we read from our text. Uh, that was our Old Testament reading this morning in Exodus. When the people ask who have sent me, what should I say? Tell them, I am has sent you. I am who I am, the ever existing one. And yet, even as he says this in the verses that we read in John 8, even as he says this, they are not to think that Jesus alone is God, but that he is one with the Father. I do nothing on my own authority, not that he doesn't have authority, but that he speaks just as his Father has taught him. This is in concert with the Trinitarian theology that has been just overflowing in the Gospel of John. I don't do these things on my own authority. This is an authority that is shared with the Father, with the Spirit. I don't do these things on my own. I do them as they come from my Father. In fact, He is not alone. He says the Father is with Him, present in the Spirit, no doubt, as Peter speaks of in Acts chapter 2. I do all things which are pleasing to him. We see this inter-Trinitarian work of glorification. Jesus does nothing independent of the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit does nothing independent of Jesus and the Father. There is an intra-Trinitarian work that is occurring here that our minds cannot get fully wrapped around. We believe it. We seek to understand it as much as we can. But Jesus is very much speaking in these terms. We cannot miss this. And ultimately, they do not miss it because what do they try to do at the end of John 8? They try to stone him for it. What we have now, looking back upon it, they are receiving in time and space about who Jesus is saying he is. And we look back upon this as new covenant believers at the end of all revelation being given to us. And we need to be able to say with confidence, not necessarily with full understanding, but with confidence, with faith that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. And that there is a trinity These these matters that we have in our doctrinal statements and our confessions are not just there to say, well, this sets us apart from Muslims and and Buddhists and and, and all other world religions. No, this is because it is truth. And the very thing that Jesus is challenging the Pharisees upon in, in, in light of what he is saying and saying they will die in their sins is the very thing that challenges us who say we believe in Jesus. It is not simply a simplistic faith. It is a rich faith that we must dive into. And when we are presenting Jesus to people, we may not have all the theological categories, etc., as we're doing that, as we're giving them the truth of the gospel, but there there is a depth here that we must bring to the conversation. We must tell them that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is God. Or we're not proclaiming Jesus as even He proclaims Himself. And we must be challenged with the truth of the Scriptures as we study them. And not just think that is for academics and people in ivory towers. Jason, you're working on a PhD, man. These are the kind of things that you're wrestling with. And No, 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 no. So things that all of us need to be wrestling with. And then verse 30. Such a mysterious verse. In our text here, and it will make more sense as we go through. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. And we should always rejoice when we hear of people believing in Jesus. However, we must measure that rejoicing. Just a little bit of a preview of next week. Jesus challenges those who are believing in him. At this moment, they are believing in him. Look at it real quickly with me. Verse 31, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. That's laughable. How is it that you say you will become free? What is Jesus doing? I mean, I don't even know how to explain that Jesus understands that some of them have believed in him. Maybe intuitively, perhaps from the spirit in that moment. But his immediate challenge to them is this. Abide in my word. You better understand what I'm saying here. Or you're not really a follower of me. This reminds us that when people claim to believe in Jesus, we must immediately help them understand what that belief means. Again, we'll address this next week. But this is why discipleship is so important. And don't misunderstand, discipleship begins here in the pulpit. We, that's what we're doing on Sunday mornings, but that's not all it is. This is, the, this is sort of the main course for the week, and I'm sorry, sometimes it's not that great. Sometimes it's like peas and carrots rather than steak and eggs, you know, a real meal. But it must flow into our lives day after day after day and into the lives of others. We we need to have Paul, Paul people in our life and Barnabas people in our life and Timothy people in our lives. It leaves us here with the challenge of asking, what do we believe about Jesus? He proclaims things that are vitally important to our faith. And we must be, Challenged by these things, not because the world comes and challenges us about these truths of who Jesus is. Jesus challenges us with them as he says it about himself in the text. He says, I am. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you you meditate on the truth that is? sometimes coalesced into a creed or a confession. I believe in God the Father, Almighty Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, who was born of a virgin. I mean, it's okay to go back through and read those historic creeds and confessions and see where people have brought these things together and understand there is something important here theologically because those are based upon the Scripture. It should be a It should be a, an encouragement to our faith as we... Read those kinds of things written before us, where people have worked hard at putting these things together and battling against things, uh, 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 false doctrine like Arianism that says that Jesus was the first that was created by God. Therefore, he is a he is a great creation, but he is not God. That is damnable heresy. People who believe that will go to hell. Who is Jesus? Who does he say? He say, Jason, you should get sick more often, man. They get you worked up. No, this truth gets me worked up. And the fact that I know that people who I love are not interested in getting into and digging into the Word and understanding the things—the very things that Jesus says. Do we believe that Jesus is the I Am, that he is equal with the Father and the Spirit? Do we trust that just as the Trinitarian plan was that the Godhead would be glorified in Jesus' its earthly mission to redeem sinful men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation, that he will also be faithful in what he has promised until the time we are glorified with him? He is faithful believer. He is faithful in saving you. He will be faithful in sustaining you. Trust him. And trust how he calls you to live faithfully, to bring the greatest joy even when things are difficult in this life. And then as you're walking with him, walk with others and point them to him, his finished work, the conviction of continuing to turn from our sin to him, resting in his grace and mercy and trusting in his love and his promises. And for those who have not turned from their sin, You have heard the gospel this morning. My call to you is repent and believe that good news. Would you pray with me? Lord, let us be passionate about these truths because they're what you speak to us about yourself. You are a great God, Father, Son, and Spirit, worthy of honor and glory and praise, the only one worthy of worship. But we must worship you as you've revealed yourself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. We must believe that Jesus, you are who you say you are. And we must proclaim that truth to the ends of the earth. And let us who are in Christ rejoice in that and find our comfort and conviction in that to live in the way that you've called us to live that we might accrue the most joy as we seek for the joy that is in glory. And for those, Lord, who are in our midst who do not know you, I pray that today would be the day that through your spirit you would draw them to yourself, you would convict them of their sin, you would take their stony heart and turn it to a heart of flesh and grant them repentance and faith that they may turn from their sin and believe in you. Thank you, Lord. Let us live faithfully, not because it earns any favor with you, but because the favor has already been earned. We have been given grace and mercy. We've been given righteousness. Lord, let us live in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.